We pick up in Luke chapter 13 as we take our survey of the Lord's message of salvation and his interaction with people. Luke 13, we see that some were talking about a tragedy that must have occurred. I don't know much about this incident where Pilate had mingled the blood of some of these Galileans with their sacrifices. But Jesus turns this as a challenge to an eternal thing. And he's, he does that a lot, if you notice. And so he says in verse 2, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans, because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And so that, then Jesus mentions another situation where perhaps this tower had fallen and people had died in, in that situation, in that tragedy. And he says, Think ye that ye, they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, you shall all likewise perish. I try to apply that. If someone today were talking about some re recent... Uh, violence that may have occurred, whether it's a shooting, or someone may talk about oh, the wars uh, in the different parts of the world that's happening now. And I could imagine the Lord saying, do you think those who died in those situations were greater sinners above other people, but unless you repent, you will perish just like them? Would that get my attention or your attention if he said that? And would I apply that to myself and say, well, I, I do need to repent. And what is that? What is repentance? Well, repentance is not just saying I'm sorry. Repentance is not saying, Lord, forgive me for what I'm about to do. I'm going to keep on doing it, but please forgive me. Repentance is... I'm going to stop that activity and try my best not to do that. That's what repentance is. It's not just being sorry. A lot of people are sorry they got caught. They're sorry that this is just it happened. They're sorry for whatever. Maybe they're just sorry. Maybe they're, they feel guilty, but they're not ready to change. And that's not really repentance either. Repentance is turning. That's what it is. It's, it's a mind that results in a change of action. You have to stop doing the things that are wrong or it's not repentance. And it is required or you will perish. And then he gives an example of bearing fruit. He gives a parable. He's... He says, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, came and sought fruit thereon, which, if you have a fig tree, what do you expect out of the fig tree? Figs. <laughs> if it doesn't have figs, what might you do? You might give it a chance. You might tend to it. You might prune it. You might do what you need to do to give it patience. Maybe it will perk up. Maybe it will do what it's supposed to do. 
But if it's not doing what it's supposed to do after so much time is given eventually, what good is the tree but to be cast out? Cut up, cut down, thrown in the fire. The same is true with us. God, this world is a vineyard to God. It is his farm. And, but it is plants that he's caring about so much. It's people. And he expects things out of people. And he expects faithfulness. different form. The most obvious form would be reproducing, bearing more of what the Lord wants. That would be a part of evangelism. That tells me I think the Lord expects that if I know what it takes to be saved, then I need to do that, but then I need to share that with other people somehow. Now, Different people have different abilities and opportunities with that. But some way, some... You know the Lord's will that He wants faithful people. The fruit. And you are not involved somehow in helping Him grow that are helping him understand that. Hey, you know what? I'm going to follow the Lord, but I don't want to be involved with other people. I don't want to help other people because that's not me. And some way, somehow, I, I want to wring my hands of that because that makes me nervous. I don't like talking with people. I don't like dealing with people. I don't like the messy side of evangelism because people get their feelings hurt. Tragedies in the process of trying to help people, it, it, it is the way it is. There are some uncomfortable parts of bearing fruit. But unless I am doing my part, then I'm not really with the Lord. And so what is the Lord going to expect of me? So we can apply that, you can apply that to yourself where you need to. Then we see that Jesus is, is in the Sabbath, uh, or he's in a synagogue on the Sabbath, and there proceeds to be another one of these Sabbath incidents. You know what I might do is just review just very quickly. Back in chapter 4, Jesus attends a synagogue as was his custom. In the law, they, they worshipped on the Sabbath day. They gathered, they, they refrained from working. It was a holy day. It was devoted to God. Well, you see, Jesus' manner is... You knew what he was going to be doing on the Sabbath day. You don't imagine Jesus just saying, you know what, this Sabbath day, I'm going to take the day even to myself, and I'm not going to do just today. See the Lord doing that. Or what does he do? He's involved in that assembly, and he stands up and he reads a passage. And people see 
the passage that he wrote, and there's more, more we could discuss about that, but you see what he's teaching on the Sabbath day. Even though he's refraining from the normal work, he is doing the Lord's work in a way on that day. That was allowed. But yet some people miss not, and so he begins to be criticized, and they, they got angry at him because they misunderstood allowed and what was not, which was their misunderstanding. Jesus just plucks grain on the Sabbath in chapter 6, and he's just rubbing it in his hand. He's not cooking it. He's not kindling a fire. Those things were forbidden on the Sabbath. But simply pluck hand to mouth. And they're criticize. There's a man who had a, has a withered hand. Jesus heals him. They they. criticisms. There are six other days of the week that you can be healed. Heal the man on a, one of those days. Someone claims they're obeying the Sabbath, wants other people to obey the Sabbath, but then they're like, uh-uh, uh-uh, nah-nah. Don't be doing that on the Sabbath day. But did it never dawn on them what he was actually doing? He was, he was doing good on the Sabbath day? For them to think that that was not allowed, they're missing the whole point. Then in chapter 13 here, where we're coming back to, here's Jesus teaching on the Sabbath day yet again. And while he's there... He heals this woman who has an infirmity for 13 years. 18 years, sorry. Chapter 11. She's bowed over and he heals her. And he tells her, woman, you're loose from your infirmity. Now, 18 years would be a long time for anybody, but imagine being doubled over for, for 18 years, what that might feel like to her. Now... She's being healed, and some are picking that apart because of religion gone wrong, is what that was. But Jesus points out, you would, you would pull an animal out of a, a, a ditch more about an animal than you do your fellow human. And this woman is a daughter of Abraham. She's your fellow sister in the nation. And you care more about your animal than you do her. And so in verse 17, those who were against Jesus were now ashamed when he said that. And they ought to have been. They ought to have been ashamed of themselves for that kind of uh, mentality. Jesus goes on to talk about how that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Now, usually leaven is used as a, in, in a lot of other places as if it's like a bad influence that spreads. But here it's being talked of as if it's a spreading influence that's good. 
You see, leaven can spread. That's the whole point. But you can depends on the illustration that's being used. In this situation, he's talking about how something can grow as the kingdom should. But there were some in verse 23, I want to point out here. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? You ever wonder why they asked that question? What gave them the impression that there must be few who are saved? Was there something Jesus said and something he did that gave them that point of view? I imagine that when you look at all the things that Jesus taught and you look at the hypocrisy of some that were religious and then you look at things that others are doing and then are not practicing what Jesus is calling them to do, there's a lot of people wrong. What Jesus says to the T. And I think they got the point that there's hardly anybody doing that exactly like the way it says. Now, just recently, uh, you know, Abe, Abe and I have been studying with this gentleman for a while now. And he's a member of a denomination, which you can't read about in Scripture. And we've kindly pointed out to him some things that the Scriptures say that it's like he can almost, he almost wants to admit that the church he's a part of is doing things that differs with Scripture or that they don't have authority for. It's like he can see it, but then he'll come back with this remark like, yeah, you're never going to be able to convince the people at my church to do that. I think he's getting the point that there are... What, what he's kind of doing and reasoning in his mind is, is there are very few people who are really ready to do what Jesus said. And I think you and I, as we're reading this, we can kind of see that too. That there are some requirements of Jesus. They're not impossible. They're not, they're not hard to do. They're not hard to do in the sense that they require a great amount of talent or a great amount of ability or, or anything like that. It's not, and it's not something that he's asking you to do that you can't do. But we just know there are very few people who are willing to do what Jesus is saying. I think I know why they were asking this question, are there a few that be saved? Because there are actually very few people when you look, and, and even today, I, I believe the same thing can be said today. When we look at the requirements that Jesus gives in Scripture and we look out at the world and we say, how many people are teaching it the way Jesus taught it? How many people are worshiping the way Jesus taught us to worship in the New Testament? How many people are teaching the doctrines that we find in Scripture? Maybe name a few examples today. How many churches do you know, how many people do you know who believe that baptism is necessary for salvation, as the Scriptures teach? Acts 2.38 says, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. 
says it plainly there. It's for the remission of sins. How many churches teach that? There's a lot of churches that teach John 3.16, but there's very few churches that teach John 3.5, that except you be born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the same discussion in the same context. Baptism is a part of being born again. Baptism is a part of saving faith. And unless you're baptized for the remission of sins, you are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. How many churches, how many people do you know who will teach that? 1 Peter 3.21, Baptism doth also now save us. How many churches teach that? There's very few churches that teach that. Some churches will say baptism has nothing to do with your salvation. They'll say baptism is an outward sign of an inward grace. The Bible never says that, by the way. But a lot of people say that. There are very few people who will say, baptism doth also now save us. That's what Peter said through the Holy Spirit. That is what God teaches. But there are very few people who will teach that. There are a lot of subjects that some preachers won't preach. There are a lot of subjects that some preachers won't even preach to those who claim to believe what we believe. Like they'll teach some subjects that are, we all agree on, but they won't touch or, or they'll jump all the way around on some other subjects that are uncomfortable. So I, 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 I kind of understand the point. Are there a few that be saved? There are some churches who teach a lot of truth, but they don't teach all the truth. There are some churches that, you know, they, they'll teach, uh, take the Lord's Supper once in a while, but how many churches do you know who every Lord's Day they will honor the Lord to death by taking the Lord's Supper? Jesus rose on the first day of the week. They, they'll take up the collection every, every Sunday, but they won't take up the Lord's Supper every Sunday. Well, why is that? Why don't they want to honor the Lord to death? Why don't they want to honor His resurrection? Are there a few that be saved? Are there a few people actually doing what Jesus taught? Well, when you look in the book of Acts, you see that also there was this, uh, the church, that those side of the church were spoke of them as the sect that is everywhere spoken against. Well, why is that? Why are, why, why are people all over speaking against God's people? Well, probably because of some of their beliefs are not popular. Probably because some of the requirements are things that other people are not willing to do. And so Jesus responds to their question when they asked, Are few that be saved? Verse 24. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and has shut to the door, and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence you are. Then shall ye begin to say, We've eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence you are. 
Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last. There's going to be some surprises. There are going to be some people who think they're going to go. And they might tell you, oh, I'm going. There are a lot of people. How many people do you know, if you ask, are you ready to meet your maker? How many people would say, oh, yeah, I'm ready? But if everybody says that, are they all right? Is everybody right? When they say, oh, yeah, I'm ready, if they all say that, there's a lot of people who are mistaken. Telling themselves they're okay when they're not. But me telling you that I'm okay, me telling myself that I'm okay, and lying to myself is not going to be what gets me in. Pretending that I'm okay when I know I'm not is not what's going to get me in. What's going to get me in, the only thing that's going to get me in is that I met the Lord's conditions of grace, and that's it. And being religious in and of itself isn't what gets you in. You do need to be devoted. You do need to be committed. You do need to abstain from sin. You need to strive to live to the best of your ability to the Lord's standard. But there are a lot of people who think they're doing that and claim they're doing that, and they're wrong. And I have to ask myself, am I one of these? Am I one of these people who are, think I'm going? Time to do a real gut check. Time to really ask myself. And are there some who I think, oh, they'll never go. They'll never enter in. Because So let's, let's don't bother with them. But they might be the very ones who are ready to fully repent and surrender their will fully to God and be all in and do exactly what he says and they, they may go in and I not if, if I have the wrong attitude. And so that's why he is challenging their thinking in that way. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and Jerusalem was a city that persecuted the prophets. It was a religious city. It was supposed to be the holy city. They had the temple. They were known for, for that. And yet that place was destroyed because that place had connected the messages of God by his messengers. Think of all of the religious people who go to church, who give, who are active in their churches, who are either following a false plan of salvation or they're following their own traditions or, they're, or, or they haven't fully done what God said and even though they're religious, yet they're still lost. Just like the Pharisees. Jesus said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so no wonder some thought that there were only going to be few saved. 
Look back in history. How many were on the ark? How many people were willing to believe there's going to be a rain and a rain so much it's going to flood the whole entire world and the only way that you're going to be saved is you've got to build this contraption to the right specifications to the Lord's pattern and standard and then you've got to get in that contraption or you're going to drown. And then actually do that. I'm sure whenever the rain started and that door was shut, it was too late, but there were probably people who wanted to get in then. Now everybody wants in, but it's too late. It's going to be that way when the Lord comes back. There are going to be people who are, who, who are going to say, I, I, now I'm ready. And it's going to be too late. So in chapter 14, Jesus continues. He goes into the house of... Pharisees, and if you notice in the theme through what we've been trying to show, is that Jesus is talking to tax collectors, he's talking to, to prostitutes, convincing them to turn from their sin. They are getting forgiven whenever they, return, they turn from their wicked ways. And then there, he also takes time to teach those who are religiously wrong. And there, this place, and he asked them again. He brings up this subject about the Sabbath again. And you might wonder why does he keep why why is this subject keep getting brought up throughout Luke? Well, probably because they're not getting it yet. So he has to bring it up again. Maybe eventually they'll get the point. But verse four, after he asked them, "Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath?" They hold their peace. Verse five. He says, which of you shall have an ass or an ox fallen into a pit and will not straightway pull him out on the Sabbath day? So he, he makes this point again. And they couldn't answer him. Isn't that interesting how sometimes you ask the pointed question and no real good answer? Yet the, 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 uh, the criticism continues, but, the, no, but the, the answer is not given. Verse 8. Jesus gives an example. Then thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, give thee this man place. And thou begin with a shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in thy lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. So what apparently have been happening is you have these religious leaders who want to be chief. They want to be first. They want to be seen. So what they do is they do their deeds to be seen of men. They want the chief seats. They want the accolades. They want the, 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 the flattering titles. They want to be lifted up above everybody else. And they would actually choose the chief spots wherever those were. And what Jesus is saying here is that what you really ought to do, if you want to be great, you should humble yourself and take the lower part. And here's kind of the point. We might, we might liken it to this. What, what do we teach our kids? If you go to someone's house, would you take the, the papa chair, you know, the, the, the lazy boy, and let your kid sit down in that lazy chair and plop your feet back, and let's say an elderly person comes in, now are you going to have to tell the child? 
get up and let them sit there. That's kind of embarrassing. The child was maybe thinking of themselves. But then perhaps if the child and they elderly person sit in the better chair and they're sitting in the and the child's sitting in the floor. Now what you might do to that child is that kind of endears you to that child. You say, Oh, that's sweet, look what he's doing. He's giving the seat to the older older person. He's being thoughtful. Oh, you don't have to sit on the floor. Here, c- come up here. And then you give the child a, a seat. That, isn't that better to put yourself lower and then be brought up higher rather than do it the other way around where uh, you get brought down? But that's what the Lord does. He takes those who are proud and he brings them down and he takes those who humble himself and he br- lifts them up. And then verse 12, here's, when you're going to invite someone, here's, here's a good way to invite people. What do people do? You tend to say, you know what, I want to invite someone who might return the favor. Wouldn't it be nice to invite some, someone who's maybe well-to-do, has a nice place, invite them over to your house, feed them well, and then what's your hope? Oh, I get invited to this nicer place, I, I get nicer food, and then they'll, they'll repay me. But Jesus is now using this example as the Flip that around a little bit. What he says is, if you're going to invite someone, don't invite those who will return the favor. Here, if you really want to do it, and you want to do it the way the Lord does it, you invite someone that can't return it. Someone who can't pay you back. Invite someone who doesn't have the means to pay you back. Isn't that more beautiful? You might say, well, what's in it for me? Why would I do that? It's not about that. What's, what was in it for the Lord to give up his place in heaven and come here and then give up all the things that he gave up here for us so that we could then come up and be with him? What was in it for him? He didn't do that for him. He did that for us. And if we're going to be like him, what we need to do is and we need to give to those who can't repay. We need to help those who can't help us back, not I scratch your back so you scratch mine, no, I'll, I'll scratch your back when you can't scratch mine back in return. Then he gives another example about invitations. There's a great supper. Invitations are sent out. He's invited the guests then guests start making excuses. What are the excuses? Well, one, I bought a piece of ground. I got to go see it. Might seem like a reasonable excuse. You know, if you just bought a piece of property, wouldn't you want to go check it out? You know, that's yours. That's, you you want to you wanna see what it, what it is and tend to it. Another, I bought five yokes of yoke of oxen. Well, let's translate that. What if you bought some new tool? Now you got to put it to use. Verse twenty. Another said, "I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come." I don't know that one. The way it's written, I always kind of look at that, and it seems kind of funny. Like, what, 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 what kind of excuse is that? I married a wife and cannot come. What does that even mean? Well, I don't know. 
Do wives have expectations? Do wives want time spent? Are there things you wanted to do with your wife? Are those going to be possible distractions to keep you from coming to this event? Well, but here's the problem, though. This event that he's referring to is not just any event. We're not talking about just one little thing that you can do again later. We're talking about the analogy to make it fit is this is a one-time thing that you do not want to miss. It's the most important event ever. And it does not matter how many excuses you have or how good you think the excuse is. If you miss heaven because of any other reason, work, family, money, even if you think it's a good excuse because it's something you need to do, you need to eat, you need to provide for your family, you need to whatever, or even a relationship. He's saying, do not miss heaven for any reason and none of the excuses are going to matter in that event. does is he starts to say, okay, they don't want to come? Fine. Go and those who will. Go out into the highways and the hedges. Compel them to come in. I want my house filled. Now, I've got to look at this and I've got to say, okay... I need to be doing. Number one, I need to be there and not miss it for the world. And number two, I need to help him invite others and compel them to come in. If I'm not doing that, then if I'm not in and I'm not helping others come, then what am I doing? I need to be there and I need to have as many other people be there because that's what he wants. If he thinks it's this important, there's nothing absolutely nothing more important than that. And so then he gives the statement about counting the cost. And driving this point home, he says, if any man, verse 26, any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also he cannot be my disciple. Got to admit, that's, that's laying it out there, isn't it? What do you mean? Except I hate not my father. Now, surely he's not saying you have to despise and detest your parents and your family. That's not the point. But certainly the point is, no matter who you love, or what you love, you better love the Lord more. Even more than your own life. Verse 27, Whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now some people wonder what is the cross that he's talking about that you're supposed to bear. He's not talking about jewelry. He is not talking about a little burden. What he is talking about 
is what cost Jesus himself, what put him to death was the cross. He's put to death on the cross. And when he's saying, unless you take up your cross, that means even be willing to die for him. That's, that's the point that he's making. And then come after him and follow him. Jesus doesn't make a gimmicky sales pitch. He doesn't make some kind of sales pitch that says, if you come and follow me, all your problems will go away. You'll win friends and influence people. You'll make money. You'll have health and wealth. And you'll be as happy as, as a lark here on earth. And everything will be hunky-dory. That's not what Jesus said. What he did say. If you want to be a part and follow him and be in heaven, you've got to be willing to give up everyone and everything if necessary. Count the cost. If you're going to build something, count the cost. If you've seen some house that's been sitting there, it's got, you can tell it's been under construction, it's been sitting there for 10 years, and it's not completed, it makes you wonder, what happened there? They get part of the way through and didn't finish. Did they run out of money somewhere? Did, did, why didn't they, at the beginning, Say, you know what? Do I have enough money to build this house? And if they start it, count the cost. But let's count the cost. What if heaven cost you everyone and everything? Would it be worth it? Let's do the flip side. If you have everything in this world, if you gain the whole world and you lose your own soul, what will that profit? Nothing. Verse 30, some are going to mock the person who starts to build and doesn't finish. Does the Lord want starters? People who start to obey. People who start to live right. People who start to read their Bible. People who start to give. People who start. Yeah, you need to start, but you need to finish. And are you going to, to finish what you start? If, you, if you've already started, are you going to end? And are you going to carry that till you die so that he, going, he can say, well done? Or are you going to quit halfway through? Because the Lord doesn't want quitters. And it's not those who go halfway and then quit that get to make it. It's those who finish to the end. He mentions the example of someone going to war. Imagine someone saying, you know what, I'm going to join the military... I'm going to sign up. I'm going to enlist. I'm going to take basic training. I'm going to leave my family. I'm going to make all that sacrifice. Then they get out there, and then they say, Oh, no, this is harder than I thought. This is kind of rough. This, this, this is too challenging. I, I want to go now. You see, the Lord doesn't want AWOL soldiers. He doesn't want people to go halfway and then quit. 
Count the cost. Verse 33, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Are you his disciple? If not, do you know why you love the Lord? Do you know why you want to be with him? Do you know what he's done for you? Do you know how much he cares for you? What's holding you back? What's holding you back from being all in? Not just part of the way in, but no matter what it takes, decide to follow God. You do a few good deeds, and but you don't. And let's say you do a lot right. Other people might look at you and say you're a good person, but if you're not baptized for the remission of your sins, you haven't been covered with the blood of Christ. You're still in your sins, even even though you've done a lot of good things. That's not what gets you in heaven. Doing a lot of good things is not in of itself what gets you in heaven. Now, if you've been covered, then you want to do good because you are saved. Be baptized. Believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And be ready to surrender all to Him. And then finish. If you think, well, I'm just going to do a few things, but, you know, this one thing, I, I can't do that. I can't bring, I'm not going to do it. Why, why not? Why not? Why not obey the Lord with all you got? I'm begging you to surrender completely to Him while we're standing as we sing.